is Zip Rap on BFBS with Kate Jabot. The next Defence Review's three-point plan, go far, go well and think about it. Syria, America and Russia go head-to-head on what happens next. British troops teaching the Kurds how to beat IS and get streetwise. I mean, when you look at a place like Mosul, they're really built up, their town cities. And that's what they wanted, they wanted that with more IED training. And 75 years of the George Cross, the people's decoration. The Defence Secretary Michael Fallon says the MOD has to think more about innovation, working on an international scale and being more efficient. That theme looks like being the basis of British defence policy and spending to be developed in the next Defence Review expected by November. Well, I'm joined now by Richard Norton-Taylor, who writes for The Guardian on Defence and Security and BFBS Defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Richard Norton-Taylor, this speech Michael Fallon Fallon gave at the Defence Think Tank Roosie this week. First and foremost, he emphasised how much the world had changed since the last Defence Review five years ago, especially the threat from terrorism in all its forms. He did indeed, and I think um, because of the rather sort of fiasco, in a sense, of the, of the ill-prepared nature, by, almost by definition, of the rushed 2010 uh, Strategic Defence Review, this one is going to be, um, he promised, uh, a, a, it will have a, a new national security strategy, apart from anything else, and there are new themes, as you say. He talked about the importance of uh, of uh, the non-state actors, of course, ISIL being the enemy and so on, as well as a revanchist Russia. But also, he talked about the, the importance of multinational. He emphasised the point of multinational cooperation in the defence and security field, or what he called international by design, as he put it. And I think we may see something or hear something about that. In the UN General Assembly to, uh, next week. Christopher Lee, he he was at pains to explain how well researched the thinking was behind this forthcoming review, wasn't he? Who is doing it? What we have is the Cabinet Office over the road from the Defence Ministry. They run every month a think tank, well, a thinking on on who's doing what. They parcel out expertise and say, look, we need to know more about this. What is your contribution? These go out to different government departments. And then, including the Defence Ministry, of course, but it may be people sending out aid, it may be some responsible uh, for trade and negotiations with uh, with aid or, or anything to do with business, for example. Bring business in, bring other agencies consult with other mm. countries. Mm. Now, you bring this lot in together every month and you're building up a picture of what you want your foreign policy to be based upon for the next 20 years. Richard Norton-Taylor, you say that there could be some kind of uh, announcement next week, more emphasis on UK international cooperation. Are you talking about perhaps an announcement on South Sudan, that kind of thing? Is that what we're going to see more of in the future? Well, uh, yeah, a bigger contribution uh, uh, by, by British forces to UN peacekeeping operations. South Sudan is certainly one area which has been mooted, and maybe others as well. And uh, the Americans have been pushing the Brits to do more on that front. Can I just pick up very quickly to what um, Christopher Lee said about uh, cooperation with government departments. Michael Fallon did emphasise the need for cooperation much more with the Foreign Office and DFI, the Department of International uh, Cooperation, but also with spooks, the intelligence agencies, which of course are uh, working much harder, MI6 abroad, Mm. MI5 at home, with the military. It's it's funny, isn't it, Christopher? I mean, you'd assume that that kind of cooperation went on all the time very well anyway. It, It... It does to some extent, and when you look at what, for example, there's the Defence Intelligence Agency, is looking at different aspects of intelligence, it's got a very much a military fix. If you go to somewhere like Washington, 
And it's important to make this relationship because we have to control what's happening in the United Kingdom as well as hoping to find out more in Washington. There are 14 intelligence agencies. In the United Kingdom at the moment, there are seven different intelligence agencies, but it's bringing all that into what you want, but also being aware at the same time what the Foreign Office is thinking, uh, what trade is thinking, what aid is thinking, because they all have this uh, intelligence aspect. Mm -hmm. Richard Norton Taylor, I mean, all the thinking's very good, isn't it? But they've got to get it right. I mean, a lot of things have happened in the last five years were not foreseen, were they? They have got to get it right, and uh, I think he didn't emphasise one thing which senior people in the MOD and Ministry of Defence do emphasise, and cyber warfare, at least attacks on the cyber front. But also, specifically, he... he, he he made, well, he made it clear that the decisions had not been made, uh, made on platforms, and we do know this is all more traditional uh, uh, areas, really, and a number of fast jets which the RAF say they need, many more than they are now. And of but course, I suppose that, that is what will be done now in the, in the coming weeks, isn't it? That should be. And the other thing, of course, the severe uh, recruitment problem, especially in the Royal Navy, the shortage of engineers and specialists, and especially submariners. And of course, mm. that links to... They talk about Trident all the time, but what about the people who... And aircraft carriers or exquisite platforms, as the Chief of Defence Staff, from, uh, Nicholas <laughs> Orton, said a couple of years ago, but we're, we've still got not enough people to man them or yeah, person em them. Empty ships. Let me, let's yeah. put this in one other perspective. Um, you want a defence review, a major defence review. It's not like the old white papers, this is what the government's doing for another year. Yeah. A defence review that cannot be corrupted later on. Now, you're talking about ships or planes or whatever. When you say it cannot policy, be corrupted, corrupted later on, well, you, mean? If you Let's put it this way. When you think of a defence review now, you're thinking where you want to be in the, in the world. You... you, you the surprises that you may get in the, in the world because of cyber, because terrorism, whatever, you've got to be able to cope with them. When you get to the other side of it, which is the hardware, the platforms, they're here for sort of 20, 30 or 40 years. Mm. It's a distinctly different type of decision you have to make. I mean, after all, I mean, where you were last week at that defence exhibition, they are talking about Dreadnought 50, which is a, an advanced yeah. uh, destroyer. Yeah. Those are different things, but what you've got to make sure is that what your basic plan is for, for Britain and the rest of the world cannot be corrupted and behind that is the thinking that one general can turn around saying we don't like this what the other side the opposition is thinking we might do something about it richard norton tell it overall did you feel confident after that speech well i thought at least it's more it, it promises a more imaginative uh, strategic defence and security review uh, and about real future threats but there's only a limit to what you can do because there are short-term problems now for example you have a new you have a so-called new enemy, not so new now, ISIL, your non-state actors, terrorist groups, uh, who's attacking them from the British point of view, jets. What jets have we got? We've got 30-year-old uh, tornadoes. Uh, our modern Eurofighter typhoons uh, are not being used because they can't, uh, they're not equipped with the best uh, brimstone, the most accurate weapon system. So there are, there's a mixture of traditional problems, not looking ahead as much. And of course, the other point is, you know, not only the new terrorists are the greatest threat, but also a revanchist Russia. No one expected that. Everyone knows NATO was caught napping. Is, is that the fault of NATO? Should that have been, uh, should have looked over the horizon? Could we imagine that with Putin or not? Um, the, the, they've got to be more, more, a greater use of imaginative intelligence and people thinking and looking ahead. Uh, rather than just uh, what they have been in the past, like stovepipe thinking and just do more of what we've done before. All right, Richard Norton Taylor, thanks for your time today. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, British soldiers tell us what it's like training the Peshmerga in Iraq. And it's the 75th anniversary of the George Cross. This is BFBS 
The next few days, the United Nations are likely to become the Vladimir Putin show. The Russian president is going to New York and in a speech and private conversations, he will lay out his plan to bring the Syrian war to an end and to defeat so-called Islamic State. But it's very clear from noises off in the White House and State Department that the biggest player apart from Russia, the United States, is highly critical of Russia's military deployment in Syria on the side of President Assad, whom the Americans are fighting to depose. So what is going on? The man to tell us this is Professor Joshua Landis from the Department of Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Good to speak to you today, Professor. Well, How did it turn out that Russia supported Assad, whom we mostly believe to be the bad guy in all of this, and America supported a bunch of rebels without knowing anything about them? Well, the, Russia has a long uh, relationship with Assad. It reaches right back to the 1950s. It's his last big redoubt in the Middle East, an important base in Tartus, a, a port in which the only one for Russia to refit its ships in the Mediterranean. And it's a beachhead on the Arab-Israeli conflict. We've seen in the, last, in the last years that Russia has been at the peace table in Europe over the chemical weapons issue, over Geneva Conference, over peace in the Middle East on a number of issues because of its position in Syria. It does not want to lose that. Mm, how do you think that Russia is going to play its hand then? Well, it seems to be all in in supporting Assad, and it's taking advantage of a moment of real confusion on the part of the United States, because the U.S. has thrown its cards in with the Sunni rebels, but it always said it had an option for moderate rebels, but that option has really dried up. We've seen that the three or four different strategies that the United States has, has pursued in order to build moderate rebels that would push aside both ISIS and al-Qaeda have all turned to dust. Mm -hmm. So there are no moderate Sunni rebel partners for the United States to take on ISIS. And, and that leaves the United States completely flummoxed. And Putin is taking advantage of that. He's moving in strong for his partner and saying, look it, let's all get together and make ISIS enemy number one, not Assad. If Assad collapses, ISIS is going to take Damascus a city of five million people. And from there, it'll be attacking Iraq, Israel, who knows what next. And we don't want that to happen. So let's put aside our differences and concentrate on taking out ISIS. And, and the United States doesn't quite know what to do because all of our allies, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Israel, in the Middle East, want to take out Assad first. They say Assad, ISIS can be defeated second. So, Christopher Lee, uh, Russia moving in strong into Syria. Just take us through what is there at the moment. The most important part of, uh, of the deployment of, of the Russians is going to, into something which is already there. I mean, the, pro the professor was talking about Tartus, for example, the naval base. Whereas before, if you go back to the 70s, when they had these uh, accommodations with Egypt, they had at Hamamat a submarine sort of grouping point, etc. Actually, by today, or in fact beginning of the week, in their uh, renovated airbase there, they're putting in uh, equipment and accommodation for somewhere in the region of 3,000 people. Now, this is long-term because they're putting, for example, medical uh, accommodation as well, and that means you're there for the duration. They've put in a complete new squadron of, of aircraft, which are strike aircraft, not just transport aircraft. They've also got large... Uh, they're renovating the airport, or the runway itself, which can take larger aircraft. They've got uh, air, air defence systems going in. 
These are people, just as the professor says, who are there for the, the long term. And mm. in some ways, it's almost as if they were trying to re-establish what they had in the 70s with the Egyptians. Do you believe that, Professor Landis, that, that President Putin is trying to do that, re-establish uh, what his predecessors had in Egypt in the 70s, establishing a major presence in the Middle East? And if so, what, what would he want him to be do with it? Yes, I think he, he's very... He's very anxious lest Russia lose its major position in the Arab world and in the Mediterranean. Um, how ambitious he is, whether he thinks that Assad can reconquer all of Syria or he just wants to make a deal in order to try to get a ceasefire where Assad will remain in Damascus and the coast, I don't, I don't know. And I don't think anybody knows right now. Um, but those, are, those seem to be the two major possibilities. One, he, he may believe that he can actually sway the United States and this coalition to to helping restore Assad. Um, or he may be just, um, this may be a lot of bluster, but trying to uh, cut some kind of a deal. So do you think it is likely then that the, in reality there will be a partition Syria, Assad on the western seaboard, IS in the east? Well, it depends whether the United States and its allies, Turkey and Saudi Arabia, want to outbid Russia Hmm. And how would, how would they outbid them? They'd throw in a lot more arms, uh, just what they've been doing in the past, and weaken Assad. Assad is quite weak, and Russia is stepping in, in large part, because they see him crumbling. And uh, they don't want that to happen. So the United States could, you know, could draw Russia into a very nasty ground battle of attrition, which is what's been happening with the Assad regime already, and throw in a lot more tow missiles and other things that are going to hurt his... Um, that are going to hurt him. No-fly zones, you know, trying to push back Russian air power, that, that kind of thing. Do you think there's likely to be any announcements from these talks between Vladimir Putin and the White House? Um, you know, I think the United States, I think Obama, President Obama, is treading very cautiously. He has tried not to get sucked into Syria in any serious way over the last, you know, the last five years of this revolution. And he's got one more year as president before he can hand it off to somebody else. And I think, you know, if I were president, and I'm sure he's thinking, how do I get that that one year without anything blowing up on my watch and and, uh, and committing the United States to taking on Russia in a very in a, in a place like Syria, which America doesn't have a lot of interest in, and that's where I think a lot of focus is going to be on Britain and on Europe, in particular France and Germany, because they're getting all of the refugees. And in a sense, they've got the hot potato in their hands today. And if they want to do something about it, I think that Obama will let them take the lead. All right. Professor Joshua Landis from the Department of Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma, thank you very much for your time today. Well, on Saturday, it will be exactly a year since MPs voted to authorise British airstrikes against so-called Islamic State in Iraq. As part of Operation Shader, the RAF has carried out more than 250 airstrikes in Iraq and the Defence Secretary Michael Fallon has said an estimated 330 ISIS fighters have been killed by RAF bombs. Well, meanwhile, a small deployment of British troops has been working on the ground in Iraq, training a Kurdish militia, the Peshmerga fighters, to fight IS. BFBS presenter Charlene Guy has been speaking to some of the soldiers who've done it. Here's Lieutenant Rob Smith from the 2nd Battalion, the Princess of Wales's Royal Regiment. So we developed a three-week training programme focusing on low-level infantry tactics, um, using the three basic tenets of move, shoot and communicate, 
um, and trying to improve their skills in those three basic talents in order to make them more combat effective in their fight against ISIL. And is it fair to say that the Peshmerga troops, they weren't used to this kind of training, this idea of, of having some training before deploying and, and fighting against ISIL? Yep, so that's exactly right. So the, the Peshmerga culture itself was uh, difficult to try and sort of uh, encompass training into. Um, the reason being is because they had a very much a two-pronged assault when it came to a training rotation. They did basic training uh, when they sort of first arrived as the Peshmerga, but that was only a couple of weeks. They then deployed out onto the front line to fight against ISIL and then rotated through a package of leave and then back onto the front line itself without then learning any lessons and conducting any training. When we went there... We uh, tried to encompass training and pre-deployment training as part of this rotation to make it a bit more of a three-prong cycle where they went then from leave to our three-week pre-deployment package before then deploying on the front line, which made them more combat effective uh, so they were able to defeat the dash more effectively. And what do you think the British military gave them during that three weeks? Um, I mean, why was it so important that we go out there and and give them that training? I think it's important because it's, uh, it gives a soft and more sustainable effect. Um, at the moment, politically, because there's no appetite or less of an appetite to go and deploy onto the combat sort of role on the front line, um, the best thing we can do is to improve those that are. And that was seen out there on Operation Shader, where we went forward, we gave a sustainable uh, training effect, a softer effect, so that we can then... Uh, move away and leave a lasting legacy of better trained soldiers, yes, but secondly, better trained instructors that could then pass that knowledge on down the line in the future. And what was it like communicating and working with the Peshmerga troops? It was uh, it was interesting. Um, we were very lucky to have some very competent and uh, excellent English speakers with us um, that came over as interpreters. So each uh, training team was, was given two interpreters to work with and they were vital. So they, they provided a brilliant asset in order that we could communicate successfully with them. That being said, a lot of our uh, instructors were, were brilliant linguists themselves. So they sort of took on board the fact that language can break down those barriers. So they were very keen to listen to the Peshmerga, to learn those sort of 20 or 30 crucial words that meant they could communicate effectively and pretty much get a basic understanding in, in the, both manners um, and also how to instruct infantry training so they could understand what was going on at any one time. And as an infantryer, what was it like doing that training and watching them go on to fight? It was, uh, it was good to see their progression. Um, it was excellent that we had the specialists to do the training. It was very much for us just delivering our core business and doing our core business abroad in terms of delivering infantry training. But to see the Peshmerga improvement and in that knowledge that they did then go forward um, and fight in the front line and were more effective as a result. Um, I know when we were there, the, the, one of the senior brigade commanders in the Peshmerga was uh, very keen to tell us that they, their troops that we trained were four times more effective um, than those that hadn't received our training. So that was a very positive uh, message that came from the Peshmerga and one that we were keen to carry forward to make sure everyone then uh, continued with this improvement. So that was Lieutenant Rob Smith. Let's hear now from Corporal Dale King. It's probably one of the proudest moments of my career. Um, some of you may laugh at that, but it was, it was great to see the start sound that they come at and they're very willing to learn. And by the end of week three... They're doing stuff that we'd expect our private soldiers to do without even questioning or saying, you need to do this. They're, they're doing it off their own bat. And finally, Private Harry Corbyn, who says what the Peshmerga really wants to know was how to fight in cities and towns. I mean, when you look at a place like Mosul, they're really built up, their town cities, and that's what they wanted. They wanted that with more IED training, so kind of we forgot about the, the, kind of the, the infantry skills 
still made them up to a good standard, but then brought them more onto the counter ID and fighting in a built-up area. Christopher Lee, interesting that they want to learn about urban warfare. Yeah, because you when you when you look at the fighting that's going on there, mostly simply think you know it's desert, and you've got uh, IS sort of going in, taking towns, whatever. If you're going to really beat IS, you've actually got to keep them out of the towns in the first place. But when you actually go in, that is the toughest sort of war. You don't have any very little close air support. You have very little artillery support. You actually got to do eyeball to eyeball fighting, and that's what they wanted to know because it's a very technical, technical sort of a, a clever thing to do. How to how to take a house out, for example, how to go into a house, how to go into certain streets and side streets and be covered all the time, and that's the expertise they didn't have. The other thing which is brilliant about this, three you know, three weeks. Mm-hmm. I mean, most people you can't teach you drive drive a car in three weeks, but you know, three weeks, <laughs> three years even, three yes, I remember now. But three weeks, these guys are not just teaching them how to do it; they're teaching them then to say, right now, you go and teach mm. the other people how to do it. Just how good are they, the Peshmerga? They're the Kurdish militia. They are probably the best fighters uh, in in the Middle East at the moment. They are arguably. Are better than IS, and if you look at the success they've had, certainly in Iraq, uh, and starting to have in some ways with Syria, I would suggest that the Peshmerga may not be the solution to beating IS, but they're doing far more damage to IS. IS are pulling out of certain firefights because they, when they see what the Peshmerga are doing, they're pulling back. Now that's no bad thing for them to do that militarily, but it's, nobody else is causing that. How do they get on with the, the Iraqi army? <sighs> Well, the Iraqi army, they're keeping them apart almost. They've got to work with them, obviously. But they're keeping apart in as much as they do different types of operations. And the Iraqi army, sad to say, still is discredited among people like the trainers we've just seen. They'd much prefer to work with Pashmurgas, quick, very, very quick learners, quite determined and very disciplined. Uh, that's not a bad army to have on your side. Those last two soldiers we heard from there, they were 23 and 20 years old, respectively, and it was their first operation, this. Well, you see, we're out of Afghanistan, and it, you, you might have, ex- you could have expected, for example, a soldier of that sort of age, uh, say this year, later this year, uh, you know, Princess of Wales Royal Regiment, going on a tour, a six-month tour, in place like Africa, Afghanistan, we're out. But we go right back to the beginning, uh, and, and Michael Fallon, the uh, Defence Secretary, is saying, we've got to be doing more international things, and we have values, and it doesn't mean to say you're in there for a ten-year war. Mm. You can go do a great job, as these guys have done in three weeks. Also around this weekend, the NATO Secretary-General, Jens Stoltenberg, he's visited Ukraine this week on Monday. What went on there exactly? How significant do you think it was? Well, it's significant in as much that after all this has been going on, this is the first visit of the Secretary-General mm. of NATO, uh, which is a bit of a... Bit was of a year into the job, is that right? Yeah, yeah. which is a bit, a bit of a puzzle. But I think the important thing here, uh, or, or what we're getting to, is that NATO is realising that within the next sort of three or four months, the whole scene, the whole... Uh, the, what he calls the planet of operations in, in Europe is starting to take on an edge which we hadn't seen before. The Americans are in the process of putting Bravo 16 updates on their nuclear weapons into Germany. Uh, the Russians are saying, if you do that, we're going to put retaliatory uh, missiles. The whole problem of 
Europe and including Ukraine is going to be harder to harder to resolve mm. in the next six, six months. Let's talk about the Pope in America. He's been to Cuba. What's going on? What's he doing exactly at the moment? I think sometimes we forget that the Vatican are great uh, ambassadors, the, the great envoys. Um, I mean, not 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 a uh, not not a, not a, a, a Pope, um, but it was a very it's a very clever uh, cardinal in in Havana called Ortega. And Ortega, uh, Cardinal Ortega, has been the go-between Washington, uh, from working from uh, Rome, Washington and Cuba. He is the man that's pulled together the idea that the Americans and the Cubans can start getting back on, a, on, on an evening kill. And that's particularly important because Rome, the Vatican, have been great diplomats for, from, from, for, for three or four hundred years now. Uh, there could be a cyber truce between China and the United States. Oh, Do you believe a, it? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> I, believe, I believe they can get themselves an agreement. But one of the problems... Can it, it hold, you Well, think? that's the problem. You see, you see what, the problem with any agreement is the ratification. And one of the first things that will happen is the Congress will look at this and say, we're not rat ratifying this, because we know that they've got four... Uh, Let's share more stuff so that we can protect ourselves. Well, doesn't yes. seem to quite ring true, does it? Well, it, it's not in that. It's the fact you can't believe they will do it. They've got four, they've got four centres for hacking. And those four centres for hacking are hacking into the American system. And just three, three weeks ago, they were hacking into the Pentagon. So if you're in, if you're on the Armed Services Committee, are you going to say, yeah, we'll give this, we'll give this vote to uh, uh, ROK? Maybe they're cautious about it. Just but it's a sign. Just briefly, um, when do you think there'll be an announcement, if if there is one on South Sudan? Uh, probably in the first three days of next week. Some of Britain's bravest have gathered in London today for a special ceremony. They've been marking the 75th anniversary of the George Cross and George Medal. Former Royal Marine Matt Croucher received the honour after he saved the lives of his fellow Marines when on a nighttime patrol of a Taliban bomb factory he tripped an explosive device. He threw himself onto it to absorb the blast and survived unscathed. Well, today, at an event marking the anniversary, he told our reporter Claire Sadler that he's never thought his actions were anything special. I don't think too much about it, to be honest. I'm, what I did is what I did. You don't do things to get medals. It, it was just another day in Afghanistan, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but at the same time, I'm quite intrigued to meet um, various people that have got George medals and George crosses um, for various actions and, and chat to them about their, uh, their history, basically. You don't feel that your actions at the time were above and beyond the call of duty? Uh, if I'm honest, no, not really, because it's Afghanistan and stuff like that happens pretty much every day. It was just a very, um, I think the, re the reason really behind it was it was, it was we were in a four-man team. It was a covert mission, um, and it just happened to be a grenade attached to a tripwire, which is what caused uh, the incident um, that was awarded the George Cross. Um, but in the middle of battle uh, and with various other events that have gone on, you look at other people and there should be a lot more uh, gallantry and bravery awards awarded, to be honest. Have you spoken to the others here today about their honours? Uh, more last night over several beers. So, uh, yeah, um, met Lisa Potts yesterday and she was, she was quite shy and came up to me and she goes, oh, you probably won't know who I am, mate. It's probably before your time, but um, I was a school teacher who, um, there was a guy that had came into our school with a machete and started killing the children or attacking the children and I you know stopped him and straight away I knew who she was and the action behind it so yeah no it's really good to, to mix with people like that have a drink have a chat uh, see what they're actually doing in life now as well because um, 
a lot of people, their events happened several years ago. They've either left the military or moved on from their civilian careers where they were, um, where they were at the time. They were awarded their, uh, their medals. And inspiring that George VI created this honour 75 years ago, obviously he saw a need for it and he was right, wasn't he? Yeah, I think there was a bit of a gap. I know um, the main idea behind the medals was there was a lot of civilians doing a lot of heroic things back in World War II, um, and they naturally weren't being awarded your, your Victoria Crosses or your, um, uh, your Conspicuous Gallantry Crosses equivalent back then because um, it was military awards. So he saw, yeah, there was a need for um, a civilian kind of equivalent, although there is a lot of uh, military people that get your George Medal and your George Cross, myself being one for instance um, but there's a lot of yeah, civilian actions as well which is um, pretty outstanding That was Matt Croucher talking to Claire Sadler I just love it Christopher just another day in Afghanistan <laughs> Yeah he says uh, you, you feel safe with the Romarine um, and it, the idea well, what were you doing then always oh, go and have a few beers and talk about it we've got a light bulb you know and just carry on life as, uh, as normal mm, mm. but then that's what you're hired to do and it's the sort of people that have been it's the through. job yeah, they're sort of guys that sort of go through that dreadful waterfall thing in Peter's Pool on the training thing. They go through backwards, which is almost an impossibility. About, yeah, about, right. about the George Cross, why was it introduced exactly? Well, um, sort of as, as he hinted there, it was had a lot. If you if you look at the, for example, air raids, you know, a blitz, twenty thousand people killed in one night, uh, people doing absolutely heroic things, and the, the king sort of looked at it and said. We've got to give them something greater. And it sits below the VC, but it's above the garter, which is the highest award for chivalry that the, that the monarch can give anybody. So it's, it's pretty special. And don't forget, of course, Malta. And that's, all we have, <laughs> and that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our contributors and, of course, our defence analyst, you, Christopher Lee. Do keep your comments coming in on Twitter. We are at BFBS SITREP. Join us again next week. But from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.